So one of the things that really interests me is misdiagnosis. And since I've done the podcast, I've waited a long time to talk to somebody that was actually misdiagnosed in the mental health field. And as luck would happen, I actually got to meet somebody, not in person yet, but through the wonders of digital media, who gave a presentation on what it's like to be misdiagnosed. And it was the most compelling thing I'd heard in a long time. And I said, I got to get her on the show. And so what do I do? I reach out and by golly, Sarah Stomshore a lot, willing to come on and tell us about her story. And, and Sarah, I'm so lucky to have you here today. Uh, just a little bit of background. I know you and your husband founded Creative Caponia. Did I say that right? You got it. Yep. Down in Minneapolis. Great website, by the way. It's outstanding. And, and what you both do is you reach out to underserved populations in the mental health community. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, we like to say that we center on the margins ah. uh, because there are so many people at least here in the Twin Cities, but I would argue nationally that don't get reached by the traditional mental health model. And so right. we center there instead of the mainstream. I love it. And you're doing well because I, I've read the reviews. People like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they do. We work our little butts off. So I'm, I'm glad. And it's honestly an honor to do the work that we're doing. Um, you know, we were told many times, uh, five and a half, five, almost six years ago now, like, like this is a bad idea. I, mm. We don't know how it's going to work. And I think by some grit, but also the need for it, especially Absolutely. following COVID and the, the murder of George Floyd, right. there's been a much larger need and a deeper understanding internationally about the importance of mental health. I agree. And it makes me angry that it takes tragedy usually to teach us anything in this culture, but it 100%. seems to be the standard, doesn't it? Right. Unfortunately. Uh, but bless your heart for the work that you're doing. So I, I think we ought to just jump right in. Yeah, let's do it. So you got misdiagnosed as having schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What year again did that happen? Um, oh, gosh, you're going to make me do math right off. I'm sorry. Job. Right, Eric. Um, well, I was in grad school, so it would have been 2012. Okay. Um, would have been the year that that, that happened. So how did you find out about the diagnosis? Yeah, good question. Um, I didn't know for years, actually. Mm. Um, my brother and I had gone to see a movie. And during the, the movie, I started not feeling well. And I was kind of getting the shakes. And long story short, I went into the emergency room and they held me sort of for an observation, just making sure that everything was okay. And the social worker came to my bedside and started talking about um, just like my general health information and then brought up uh, a diagnosis around um, psychosis. And I was like, what are you talking about? Right. Uh, that was really where the conversation unfolded of, well, there is a diagnosis in your electronic health record of um, schizophrenia. And I was like, okay, well, you got the wrong health record, okay? 
Um, right. And then that from there led me back, like who, how, what, where did this even come from? And right. so I circled back to the clinic where I had been seen and then I requested the, the diagnostic. And sure enough, there it was. And I got to read through all of his thinking as to why that was the diagnosis. And there it was. Um, the, the social worker in the hospital was not wrong. What in the world were you thinking when you read that document? I, well, first off, I was sort of shocked. Um, but then secondly, you know, I'm young. At this point, I had gone through grad school and was also a therapist. Right. And reading through it, I was, as a human, angry, sad, very emotional. Um, but then as a therapist, it was like one of those moments where I was like thinking of it clinically, like how did this actually happen? What was the clinical thought process? Um, and it's just... It, I walked away from it in that moment thinking I was embarrassed and that I had to keep this under wraps right. ultimately. Because God so, forbid that gets out, right? Yeah, it just, and, and looking back on that now, I've had the extreme privilege of working with clients that really identify with that diagnosis and i think that in so many ways it there's strengths in that diagnosis and there's a community and we need to love and support all people regardless of what the labels are that are placed on them um, but for me at that time it was something that i didn't feel comfortable sharing i didn't share it with friends i didn't share it with family really it wasn't until years later that i started to sort of drop the the little notion that there was a misdiagnosis in my past beautifully explained did did you go back to this person and say what in the world I, well actually i tried to they had retired and I remember thinking, thank God he retired because on our third session, he fell asleep on me. And I remember that vividly. Oh. And I had to like nudge him to wake him up. And when I woke him up, he was sort of angry. Um, and he had expressed to me, you know, when you're done with grad school and you start doing this mental health work, you'll, you'll feel in your own body how exhausting this work is. I'm doing case notes around the clock. I never get to rest. I never get to sleep. And he kind of scared me. Like he, I remember thinking like one bad that I woke him up, which is crazy. Now that I, I think about it. I agree. It's insane. It's insane. Um, but then also, um, it made me think like, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? I'm glad I didn't stay landed in that notion. Um, but what I did do when I found out that he had retired, what I did do was I actually met with another um, provider in the clinic, uh, a psychiatrist actually, so a doctorate level, right. who said, you know, no, this diagnosis obviously doesn't fit you. Um, but the reality is, is I can like do another diagnosis, but it's there. Like you right. can't, it, right. there is a trail here. Absolutely. And so 
I just said, no, I never want to be diagnosed again. Um, and since that time, I've only ever done private pay therapeutic work. And I've been in therapy all my life. My th first therapist, I started when I was six years old. Yep, yep, yep. Now, and I'm a proud lifer. It's the only way I can continue to do my work. Um, but no, I never got a chance to talk to him, just one of his colleagues. Wow. I... So here's the thing. I always kind of plan out the questions I'm, I'm going to ask, and we talked about it, but you brought up a whole different direction, Sarah, that I got to go on now. As I because, do. As I do. No, no, it's good because the goal here is to educate young therapists. And so this therapist fell asleep on you, then blamed you for his struggle. Right. I've right. done a lot of stupid things in my career, okay? But wow, yeah, no. that is in a category by itself. Yeah. I am amazed. Yeah, yeah. And the fact you did not slap him, it says a lot about you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, Irv Yalom, one of my favorite therapists, uh, I just love the man because he's very transparent and doesn't try to win any friends in the mental health field. And I like people like that. I'm very attracted to people who aren't afraid to be disliked. He said, don't diagnose except in the most extreme cases. Right. What is your opinion of that statement? You know, I I really resonate with it. I agree with it. It is really sort of some of the brass tacks of Creative Caponia. Um, we have had the privilege of working with numerous uh, hundreds and hundreds of clients, if not, well, I'm sure we're in the thousands at this point, um, that we don't diagnose unless they request it. Okay. And, in the five years that Creative Caponia has existed, I, I'm just running through my brain. Maybe we've been asked five times. Wow. And it, all five of those times were for very specific court mandated sort of sure. boxes that needed to be checked for gotcha. probation or that kind of thing. Um, and so, what I know for sure is that there is a benefit from saying, you know, client, what I think I'm hearing is anxiety, maybe even generalized anxiety, but I don't feel the need to like put that down on paper and have that follow because I also know from my own experience that younger Sarah that had that diagnosis was really going through a lot. Right. Um, sure there was depression for sure there was anxiety there was definitely some ptsd um, criteria that was being met but i now 38 year old me i don't have that same those same criteria they don't express themselves in the same way i have different resources in my life now than i did then um so it's it's uh unfortunate that those diagnoses continue to follow because as people grow evolve mature build their community build their skill sets diagnoses change I, they shift I, and to imagine that it can't be officially removed is it's really it's really frustrating as a provider it, it, it is. And like we talked about, you know, when you work with lower income, because I, I have a lot of lower income clients that I see, they're on, they're on Medicare and Medicare ain't going to pay without a diagnosis, Sarah. They don't care. You, you can make the greatest case for why this person should be in therapy. It doesn't matter. That label is your only key to payment. 
And I think it's so unfair because what we end up doing, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, is we sometimes fish for diagnoses because we, we want to qualify them, right? Yep. Yep. I, I, had, I had a former supervisor, and, I, and I'm not making this up, actually said, I watched him interview this kid and the mom. He said, give me enough to qualify them. Now, that's pretty unethical. Mm-hmm. Do I get it? Do I get it? Yes, we want to get the kid in services, but give me enough to qualify? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Shocking, isn't it? And I've, it's, it's really shocking. And I've also seen it go the opposite direction, which is also hmm. very unethical. I have worked in places where they didn't want to overdiagnose, which I give hmm. kudos to and props right. to. But then what was happening is if you're going to be forced to be diagnosed, we can't give adjustment disorder to every single client that comes through our I know. So what what I started, what I was seeing sort of happen in some of the places that I was working was there were kids that, or young adults, that was kind of who I was working with at the time, that um, I was receiving them from another another therapist and, and they had adjustment uh, diagnoses, but I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah. this young person, I'd like to have them tested for um, educational differing abilities. Um, maybe ADHD is at play here. Uh, also just general anxiety. We weren't really addressing the fact then of kids in, in this day and age have some of the highest and extreme levels of anxiety that we've ever seen. Um, that's a whole nother podcast, Eric. Come Um, back, come back, Sarah. We could talk about it. It'd, It'd be a good one. Yes. But we're, yeah. we're also underdiagnosing people. So I do believe that there's value in saying, you know, I don't usually follow the DSM to the T, but if I did, you know, this is what I'm picking up on from my therapeutic lens. But I'm not going to, like, push it through a stream to make money because I also understand that in a year it might look so different. It might look so different. So another great point you bring up, and we talk about this in the clinical supervision I do, it's just a snapshot. And you know what we don't think about, Sarah, is what if you're having a bad day as a client? What if you're having a bad day? What or if what thera- if you're having a bad day as a therapist? Absolutely. And what if you don't like your client that day? Do not tell me the diagnosis won't be more severe because I can show the research that says it's that way. Um, all of these things play into it, don't they? Mm-hmm, and so sure. here's the question I'm dying to ask you. Has your opinion of the mental health system changed radically from, you know, the 27-year-old, the, the 26-year-old you were until now? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it's changed radically because I think I, I started to doubt it really, really mm. at the beginning of my career. Okay. Um, I was really privileged to have a supervisor that um, was also an indigenous uh, medicine human. Um, And so he was someone that really encouraged me to sort of think out of the box that the DSM didn't have all the answers to push the envelope to, uh, you know, fight for changes at the Capitol in the law that didn't fit. So I kind of was even in grad school pushed to think differently than the traditional like status quo bill insurance kind of vibe. Um, I also would say that in the last three years specifically, 
I am finding that the mental health system may be a very large boulder to push and change, but companies, nonprofits, community and faith organizations, honestly, municipalities and cities, th th those have been easier to shift. People have jumped on board with the creative Caponia model of let's not rush to diagnose. As a matter of fact, let's not diagnose at all. Uh, let's specifically center on the margin. So for people, predominantly people that um, are identifying as black or brown Let's not overdiagnose them because yeah. historically that's what the mental health model has done. And I guess I, I bring all that up to say that we have been embraced by so many other facets of community that I haven't needed to really push the mental health system to change, um, although it's something that I want to see. I was uh, recently told by someone that I really admire, another one of my supervisors that I um, was privileged to be supervised by um, during my practicum and then also during my externship years. Uh, Sarah, you should push to make the change. Go to the Capitol, lobby, fight for what's right, but get really comfortable that you'll be lucky if you see the change before you retire. And I'm okay with that because I'm finding all the love and all the answers and all the supports and other parts of community. So Creative Caponia always says that healing happens in community. We do not heal in silos. We do not heal in isolation. We heal with other people. And so finding spaces, places, and orgs that want to support this model and bring therapy to their people without the boundaries of diagnosis has really driven me to keep going. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. We will not see it change in our lifetime probably, but we will create models that people say, you know what, that looks better to me. That looks yep. better. And you know what, that's not too bad a legacy, right? Um, and, and I think that's great. I, I love the outliers. I always do because they're the ones doing the best work, Sarah, because they are creative. It's in your title. And they're curious, which is a word that I really throw down a lot because I think we, we tend to lose curiosity. I don't think we teach curiosity very well. And I certainly don't think we teach students curiosity when they go through their DSM diagnost, not diagnostic classes. It's not about curiosity. It's about arriving at something they feel is right or we want you to believe is right. But it takes the curiosity out of it. And that's why I hate the DSM, Sarah. It's, so, it's not a very curious manual. That's my opinion. True. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, do I use it? Yes, because I'm not doing what you're doing, but I believe in what you're doing because I, I, I know it's working. And yeah. I think about people that just get stuck with diagnoses, just they're, they're stuck with them, not necessarily schizophrenia, and there's nothing they can do about it. And I think about people who don't find out, you know, for years, too. I mean, what a horrible thing to have to find out. Wow, I, I've been diagnosed with BPD or some other whatever, but I was never told. Right. I, I just, that, that is so unethical to me. Very unethical. Uh, unless they have a good reason not to tell you, but I can't imagine in, in this case. Mm -hmm. So 
In terms of educating people, because again, I want the young clinicians and the young graduates to walk away from today having learned something, and maybe that's the damage the diagnoses do, or maybe it's the, the, the carelessness with which we do things. What do you say to them, Sarah? What do you say to the graduate that says, I got my MSW or my, I, I'm licensed now as a psychologist, I'm ready to go get them. What do you say to them before they start diagnosing? Mm. Oh, just be careful. Um, take your time. Be methodical. Really analyze every piece of criteria. If it's at all possible, get the extension so you don't have to diagnose in 50 minutes. Sit with someone for as many sessions as you possibly can before you lay that label onto somebody. Um, consult. If you're not 100% sure, consult. If you are a person that is of the majority and you're working with someone that might be seen as someone in the minority, do your research. Mm -hmm. Be so, so careful. Um, we, right. you know, there's so much data that uh, black and brown humans are misdiagnosed at a much higher rate. Um, the one that really stands out to me because it's connected to schizophrenia is that black men are diagnosed at a 25% higher rate than white men with schizophrenia. And wow. that doesn't biologically make any sense. No. Um, what no. I think we see so often that we don't have a label for is trauma. So if you are someone that lives and has been pushed into the margins by the larger society, then undoubtedly you have trauma. There's no way around that, in my opinion. Right, right, you right, right. Go ahead. No, I'm just agreeing with you. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You may have built coping skills. You may have built community. But there's also epigenetics of right. being pushed into the margins for generations and generations. Right. And so I think that you know, especially for myself, I identify as a white woman, I really would push people with this similar identity to mine to think long and hard, consult, do your research, really think through at the very least, if you're not sure, do a rule out. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like plop it down and, and make it official forever. Right. Um, I just think, to root back into the art of healing and not root back into the medical model that frankly was was designed by the white man. Um, there's even evidence that it's based on eugenics. Mm. Mm. Yeah, just think about that for a second. Yeah. Um, Stephen Hayes, I learned that from him, professor out of uh, University of Nevada, Reno. The, the book has a negative history. That's just the way it is. And I don't want to be a DSM basher, but it is the training tool that we put students through. And what you're talking about here, I love it because the medical model with therapy sucks. It's awful. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's amazing we keep it around. And I think we do because they say it works well enough. But it didn't, it didn't work for you. Didn't work for you. Didn't it work sure for you. Did. No. So don't tell me how a book is only as good as its least successful uh, success story, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm with you 100%. I, I diagnose because I want to get paid, but I'm very well aware that it's a freaking bunch of words. And that's all yeah. it is. My fear, Sarah, is so many students are being trained that this is reality. That when you give somebody major depressive disorder or whatever, that's what they have. And nothing could be further from the truth. I think you and I are agreeing with that.
And that's going to be tough yeah. because some of that has to happen at the college level. And, and that can be a tough niche to get into, I think, for mental health people. At least that's my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'm lucky to teach at a university locally. Um, and it's something that I'm constantly talking about in my class. They, yes. they're, they're sitting with the DSM for like three hours before they get to my class. Then they come to my class and I'm like, throw all that out the window. Let's talk about the art of healing. And I, I know that there is a place for the DSM. I am asking, maybe I'm even begging the field, new healers that are coming in to really, really root back into how did healing start to begin with right. generations and generations ago, there was no DSM. Right. Also the DSM uh, has had, there's such a long history of faulty diagnoses that have yes been removed, but what's still existing in those pages that is also faulty it also doesn't take into consideration the fact that there are diagnoses potentially that haven't been founded yet that haven't been called anything yet you know i brought up trauma we have ptsd but that doesn't necessarily equate to trauma Um, And I would argue what I would love to see happen is that if a healer decides, okay, this person is really talking about trauma, I would love for insurance companies, medical companies to say standard 10 to 15 Mm -hmm. sessions without diagnosis, work through trauma and then see, is there criteria for other things in the DSM or is this manifestation of a trauma experience? Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, to quote Yalom again, I'm paraphrasing, but would you want somebody to diagnose somebody as complex as you in two hours? I thought, right. hey, that's a great question. No, I wouldn't. I'd need at least two or three. <laughs> but it is that same thing. We, we size people up so quickly and, and to, their, to their detriment. Absolutely. Yeah. You are very transparent. I, I literally feel like everything you say is the, is the truth, and you don't have a lot to hide about how you see the field. And that's what I wanted. I, I, I sort of figured that's how you would be when you came on here. I'm going to tell it like it is, because these are the people that make change. It's, it's the truth. These are the people that make change. They have to stop being afraid of the repercussion. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to do a presentation on Thursday. I'm going to echo some of these same things. I target supervisees, I think I told you, because I think they're kind of the forgotten population in all this. It's like, we don't care much about them. Give them any case you want to, but that's a whole other problem, a whole other podcast. But what I like about you, again, is your courage. Uh, And personally, when I saw you speak, well, you saw how big the room is. Everybody wanted to go see it. And I didn't know what I was getting into. And then you realize the best people that speak have personal stories. And I did a podcast bitching about bad presentations. And I just think unless you're willing to tell a story and relate to people, it's just data and facts and no one cares. You need to be able to connect with people. And so I was, you know, captivated for like 30 minutes. And that's tough for me because my attention span's pretty bad. But uh, it was it was awesome. So I, I just am so grateful to have you come on. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciate you asking and honored to put out any of my knowledge, especially for healers coming into the field. I think it's really important to have people to to learn from and look up to. I know that it impacted my practice greatly yeah. by having strong supervisors to to aim for. So, yeah, it's been great being here. 
it, it's been, and you know, and again, I would, I would love to do it again. Um, again, there's, there, there, there's no shortage of mental health-based topics, but anything that involves growth and, and as you say, you know, mentoring and um, healer. You know, you mentioned the word healer. I started thinking, what if we took clinician and replaced it with healer? Wouldn't that change things for the better? Yeah. Yeah, we definitely call our therapists at Creative Caponia healers. Um, we denote their licensure track if that's what they choose. Um, but we also have people on our team that are not uh, licensed therapists. We have um, an improv therapist, a music therapist, and then we have mm. also a, a spiritual guider as well. Um, because we think, especially for people that have been pushed into the margins, right. traditional, like, therapy feels really scary and intimidating. Um, so we, we try to look for different ways of healing for people. That is, that is wonderful. Sarah, again, thank you so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to have Sarah back on. So we'll see if we can get her back on. Uh, yeah. This has been the dark side of therapy. If you liked it again, always hit, hit like subscribe, give us some feedback and uh, it's been a great one. Thank you so much. And thank you again, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely.